Welcome to Cross-Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. Tax Reform 2.0 to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services Leader. You can find these podcasts on YouTube at youtube.com slash Doug McConey. On this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks, we're back in Westminster Studios in St. Louis, Missouri, where I'm excited to be joined by Jeff Endress. Jeff is an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services practice and leads the U.S. Outbound Practice. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Doug. Glad to be here. Great to finally have you on. And so I'm very excited. You spent a lot of time with our U.S. Outbound clients, talking a lot about strategic planning. You do a lot of deal work. But before we dive into the topic at hand, we have had a number of Ohio State and Michigan <laughs> alum on this podcast. I would go so far as saying a disproportionate number of OSU and Michigan alum uh, on this podcast. OSU lost to Michigan for the first time in nine years. And I was just wondering if you had any comments for our Michigan colleagues and particularly Tim Anson, who for the record did not actually, was not a Michigan University alum, but a, obviously a big Michigan fan amongst others, Nene Dewar. Do you have any comments for, uh, for our, our, our Michigan colleagues? Uh, you know, I'd, I'd say the fact that we have a lot of Michigan and Ohio State people on this podcast is probably because our former leaders were Ohio State and Michigan graduates. Uh, well, Tim didn't go to Michigan, but he was right. a big fan. And Mike obviously went to Ohio State. I was devastated. I'm not over it yet. It's still, okay. still a Too little soon. soon. Okay. I have uh, a few kids, as you know, and my two boys were watching the game with me, and they are uh, 9 and 10, and they are not used to seeing us lose to Michigan. So it was a— uh, Oh, yeah. They've never seen it. No. So they were very surprised, uh, and they were like, Dad, what's going on? I'm like, well, I, I dealt with this a lot when I was growing up, but they it was new to them and uh, very unexpected, but they took it to us. Nothing I can say about it. They played great. We did not. Such is life. So. I, I will remind you that as a big college football fan, things can get worse, right? <laughs> uh, as a University of Missouri fan, I, I, I'm excited that we're bowl eligible. So we will be 6-6 six and six heading to I don't know what bowl, but uh, I'm pretty certain we won't be playing Ohio State and whatever that non-playoff uh, bowl is. This might be the year to play us, I guess, if you were ever going to play us. We, 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 we want, definitely have our weaknesses. We so. want nothing to do with you guys, I promise. <laughs> All right. So as we indicated, we're recording this the, the first week in December. While the current Build Back Better bill sits in the Senate, it's passed the House. We've spent a whole number of podcasts and, and, and time talking about some of the intricacies of those bills. But wanted to spend some time chatting with you, just thinking about from a strategic perspective, what are things that companies and taxpayers and advisors should be considering? And so before we kind of really focus on the Build Back Better plan, I thought we could start by just reflecting. I can't believe, Jeff, it's been four years, yeah. right, since we went through this again. And you and I, amongst others, kind of in our generation of, of tax advisors, waited our whole careers, right, 15, 20 years for us to get some big change, right? Everything was fairly stable for most of our careers. And then we got that massive change with the TCJA, and it was very exciting and all these new provisions to think about and guilty and just the whole ups and downs of the roller coaster that was the legislative ride. 
and we're back on, back on it again. And so I just wanted you to reflect a little bit about, you know, what's different this time. We obviously don't have the toll charge, but there are a number of things that that feel a little bit different, but also a number of things that feel the same. So maybe if you could spend a few minutes reflecting on where we are now compared to where we were four years ago. Sure. I think the fascinating thing that I've watched, I remember giving, you know, speeches at seminars in 2010, 2011 on imminent tax reform. And obviously it then took six, seven, eight, nine more years until that go around was passed in 17. So I think when it was in 17, there were still a lot of people that were not convinced that it was gonna happen. So most of our clients, you know, they were waiting to see, is this actually gonna happen? This is a major change to your point. We hadn't really had any significant reform since 86. So a lot of people were still just kind of wondering, what's it gonna do? Is it actually gonna pass? We knew what it was gonna say directionally, I think fairly well in 17, which is different than today, but we just kind of knew, okay, there's gonna be a toll charge on unremitted earnings, but the question was, is it gonna happen? This go around, it's been very different. It's been, I think a lot more people believe it's gonna happen ever since the Georgia runoff in January. However, it's been uncertain as to what's actually gonna be in the in the bill. You know, we've had a lot of different things that have been talked about since the, since the spring different movements, different drafts come out of the Senate, out of the House. And even to this day, I think there's still a little uncertainty under what's ultimately going to be passed. We still don't know, right, because mm-hmm. there's nothing finalized. We had the recent development with, with the minimum tax that came out in this most recent go-around. That was a big change. That wasn't in until you know about a month ago. And so people are trying to figure out what's exactly going to be in the final text makes it difficult for planning because you don't know what to plan for when there's uncertainty around what's going to be passed. But it's been an interesting year um, as we've watched this develop. And I think we're getting close to the end. I think if it's, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen probably before the end of the calendar year, which would be good because then it'll give us some certainty on what's actually, you know, in there and then lets people plan for it going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a couple of other points to to add to that as I as I kind of compare to where we were the prior time. I think one of the other things that's fast one of the things that's fascinating about this is that we're not dealing with rate change again. I right. mean, I'm still kind of gobsmacked about that that we're at the current point where we have this, you know, the 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 book minimum tax, kind of the new AMT is how I've been referring to it um, as kind of a replacement, I think to to make sure that they could get support in the Senate. And so, you know, some of the things as we were thinking about 2017, just some of the general planning that anytime, you know, there would be a rate change that companies would think about looking at methods and those kinds of things. Well, that's that's really off the table, right? And so that was something that I think a lot of companies had been considering. And now without the rate changes, you know, absent, obviously, the change to potentially the 250 deduction, but without a corporate rate change, you know, we're just not seeing some of that act, some of that activity or some of that that interest. Well, and on that point, I mean, if you think back to 17, some of our clients were major winners, right? Because depending on the mix of your U.S. versus Mm -hmm. foreign earnings, going from 35 down to 21 was a big win for a lot of U.S. multinational companies. That's a big rate difference. So this go around, there's not really any real winners, right? Because the corporate rate's going to stay the same, it looks like, and the international rates are going to go up, it looks like. And the, and the country by country implications of guilty are going to have a cost to a lot of our clients. So in 17, yes, everybody had a toll charge. But after that toll charge, many clients' effective rates went way down just because of the lower corporate rate. Mm-hmm. That's not happening this time. Right. Everybody you're talking to this time now is saying we're trying to adjust our effective tax rate projections to what we think the new normal is, which is higher than what it is today, clearly. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think the other very interesting piece is just the delayed effective dates for a number mm-hmm. of the provisions this time. I mean, the last go around for the most part, you know, absent some of the the tweaks and some of the the subsequent changes, as I'm, I'm thinking about like the 163J EBIT, EBITDA to EBIT. But for the most part, all of those changes were effective for tax years beginning after the date of enactment. And now as we think about guilty, you know, and, and a number of the other provisions, which we'll get into, including the foreign tax credit, a lot of those, those provisions that we do within the international tax space are not even effective until January 1st or for tax years beginning after December 31st, 2022. So that's 13, 13 months from now. And we've even heard speculation that they're, you know, maybe considering potentially even delaying guilty and some of these other provisions another year. And so it'll be very interesting to see how that shakes out. And it's, you know, not surprisingly hard as as an advisor, as a taxpayer to, to understand what to do. I mean, if, when you've got all these delayed, potentially effective rates, and is there really immediacy and sort of lacks, I think, some of the immediacy that we saw back in 2017. And, and I think that was also a recent development, right? So if you go back to the to the original things we were looking at in the spring and then early in the fall, there were no delayed effective dates. The effective dates were going to be closer to you know essentially the end of this calendar mm-hmm. year. Then with what came out of the of, of the house most recently, that was with the delayed effective dates. So if you just think about the way people have been having conversations throughout the year, every every couple of weeks as different you know drafts have come out. It changes the way you need to think of timing on your attributes. It changes the way you need to think about timing on your various planning for the rest of the year, what you're going to do next year and beyond. Because if guilty is effective 1231 this year versus in 22 or 23, you know, that changes how you think through your profile. All right. So let's unpack that a little bit. And I wanted to start with 163N. Maybe if you could just remind those of the, the listeners, we've dedicated quite a bit of time to kind of some of the technical mechanics, but remind people kind of how we, you know, what that rule is and how that's changed. And then I want to talk about, because I know you spend a lot of time from a treasury management perspective, particularly doing a number of deals and, you know, how that's impacting both kind of external debt, you know, external decisions as far as external borrowings, but then also internal capital structure. But let's just start with, uh, with just the basics of 163N. Sure. And if, if you think about our client base, most people that want to talk to folks like you and I are people that have a lot of external debt because that's just, you know, they've, they've got a lot of leverage they've built, either built up over time or they are taking on leverage as they take on new acquisitions or capital expenditures, whatever it might be. So they have a lot of debt, most of our clients do, and a lot of them are also heavily international. So they, they have 20, 30, 40, 50% of their business offshore. And historically, everybody, you know, most people would borrow external in the US, they'd take the deduction for that debt, and then they would try to on-lend into their foreign jurisdictions, and that was perfectly permissible under the rules as we had them. So you were able to get a deduction in the US and usually in your foreign country with the same capital that you were borrowing. The way that the new provision is essentially written is to the extent that you have material foreign earnings, they're trying to disallow the deduction for that U.S. bank debt that's associated with those foreign earnings. So if you're 40 or 50 percent foreign and you borrow in the U.S., generally speaking, you might lose 40 to 50 percent of that U.S. interest deduction on a go forward basis. That is not how it worked historically under 163J. So that's a fundamental change for a lot of our clients. And if you think about We've got a lot of bank debt. A lot of that bank debt cannot be retired now because there's significant penalties or they already have good low interest rates and they don't want to have to, you know, mm-hmm. re-exchange them going forward. There's going to be a material cost to, to many of our clients with just having the traditional, I borrow in the U.S., 
I've got interest expense, and now I'm going to lose a lot of that deduction on a go-forward basis. They did adjust the carry-forward in the most recent version for the 163N disallowance, but I don't know unless to you make have, it indefinite, right? Unless, unless you have a material change in your facts, it generally doesn't necessarily help you as you think about the financial in, uh, statement implications of the disallowed interest expense on the bank debt. Yeah, and your point on that is that, like, if you're in the soup on 163N because you have a significant amount of your foreign earnings um, that that are you know that are offshore, and you've got this big disallowance, unless there is some big plan to make some big U.S. acquisition or retire the debt, presumably you're going to be in the soup the next year. And then right. if you're in the soup every year, it's just a perpetual then problem. It's just a perpetual problem, a perpetual cash problem for 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 taxpayers. That's right. And so, what does that mean going forward? Once 163N, assuming 163N is in the final bill, which I think for now we should just assume that it will be. Uh, what does that mean for for our clients? It means they need to rethink their capital structures in a whole lot of ways. You know, should they continue to borrow in the U.S. or should they look at potentially borrowing offshore? Um, you know, they, I don't know if they'll do that or not, um, but I, I think they need to think about it with mm-hmm. the, with the current provisions. Um, should they try to change the way that they're going to fund future deals? I, I don't know. I mean, they need to think about it. I mean, the cost is is, is very material. I think the other leg of it that needs to be thought through is to the extent that they also have related party financing in their structures, which many of our clients do over time since uh, CFC look through has been extended since 2006. That's a 15 year window where many companies have put in related party financing that will have a different answer on a go forward basis under a by country guilty system than it has historically. So not only is it the external capital that they have with the banks where they're going to be disallowed interest, there's also going to be a cost to the related party financing in their structures in a bi-country system. So everybody needs to rethink how they've got their capital, both in the U.S. and offshore, related and external. They need to think through how do they clean that up going forward if there's not a benefit to it anymore. And that, you know, most of our clients, Doug, have 500, 800, 1,000 intercompany loans that have been created over time. Just the administration and the cleanup of all that, I've found in preliminary discussions, the treasurers are welcoming it. They're ready to try to take on that um, as they understand now that the tax profile may be changing with respect to those those notes. Yeah, and even for the smaller clients, if you just have a, a couple of those, I mean, your point is is that you know as companies are setting up treasury centers or cash pooling arrangements or even longer term structural loans. Then from a planning perspective, we'd look around the structure and look for where are the low tax jurisdictions that they could lend in. And then your point with by country guilty coming online, and maybe that is another year away before that actually becomes law. But then all of a sudden, all that income becomes subject to U.S. The, 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 the interest income that would otherwise have historically been in a low tax jurisdiction is now subject to, to immediate tax. And so companies need to go through and think about, well, what are the after tax consequences of those internal capital structures? Um, and one of the other things that we'll talk about is BEPS 2.0 and Pillar 2, which is going to impact all of this. But I, I just see that as a really big work stream as I'm looking into my crystal ball for, frankly, not just U.S. multinationals, but inbound multi, but inbound companies as well. And we haven't even talked about changes to the beat, but you know these changes to 163 N and J, which obviously apply for for both inbounds and outbounds. Um, really will require companies to take a look at both their external debt structures. Can they refinance, potentially move some of that stuff? 
you know, like all of a sudden the math changes, like, okay, well, where would you want to move that external debt, right? If you do have, you know, some debt that is coming due and they're looking to refinance for whatever reason, you know, then the the kind of the cast of characters, if you will, that we would typically choose from, you know, are a lot different. Because you're right, in the past, it was just, well, just borrow in the U.S. and if you can equity or debt fund your various foreign subsidiaries. Yeah, we, we always, usually it was preferred to borrow in the U.S. The relationships with the banks are in the U.S. The, the FX, rates. Managing the FX. FX, the yeah. rates, you know, more recently have come down so much in the U.S. It, it really was, uh, that that made a lot of sense. And And what I've been trying to explain to our clients is, you know, in particular to the more senior uh, vice presidents or the directors of international, the amount of work you're going to need to do to try to clean this up to at least make it tax neutral instead of, you know, detrimental right. is material. So don't underestimate the amount of time and energy you're going to need to spend with your teams and with, you know, hopefully advisors, you know, to try to, to work through all that. It's, it's a lot of work that they're going to have to do. And it's work that Doug, quite frankly, has been not re- as relevant because look through you know, this came up every once in a while as look through was not going to get extended, mm-hmm. right? Like, okay, what do we do with regarded intercompany debt? Do we have to change it, clean it up? You mean well, if it would have become subpart F right. because look through would have been extended. Right. Yep. And, and so every couple of years this would come up and then look through the most recent go around five years extension. And so it's kind of like, okay, we're good. Well, that's not necessarily going to be true right. going forward if we're in a bi-country system. You, you, do, you lose some of that benefit, and is it worth it? And would you keep it, or would you change it? There's a lot of discussion that needs to take place around that. Yeah, anticipate a lot of activity in that space the next year. The one other thing I'll leave with 163N is that you're right. A number of our clients and taxpayers have significant international operations, but even if you're a largely domestic company, and let's say you've got 5% of your yep. earnings that are earned offshore, I think a number of taxpayers maybe haven't spent as much time really focusing on 163N. And if you're a highly leveraged domestic business, depending what industry you're in, 5% of your, losing 5% of your interest expense, in my overly simplified example, could still be be very significant. Yeah, good, so, good old-fashioned math, right? right? 5% of a big number is still a big number. Exactly. So, um, you know, I, I we do have clients that are, you know, 90% domestic, but they have a lot of a lot of external financing. That 10% is a, a material big number. number. Yeah. Exactly. So let's move on to the foreign tax credit. So I know, you know, again, the what the the consequences to interest expense, both from a J and an N, are on everybody's mind for inbound, outbound companies. Um, foreign tax credits are also this will be the most significant change that we've seen to the general foreign tax credit regime, certainly in our careers, and we've been we've been through quite a bit. But the idea of moving to country by country. Um, from a guilty perspective, so we have foreign tax credit baskets for every single guilty basket, and then with respect to the general basket as well as the branch basket, those will now be combined, right, in this kind of new general basket, and that that also needs to be done on a country-by-country basis, and then apparently there's also going to be this magic residual basket or the residual residual basket. Residual general, I guess. Yeah, the residual general basket. Um, so talk a little bit about what does that mean to taxpayers and we can dive into ODLs and because there are a number of taxpayers with particularly with foreign tax credit attributes where they have, you know, deferred tax assets on the financial statement. So a lot of public companies are particularly interested in how these rules will work. Yeah. And I think if you think about the historic system, there are clients, many of our clients still have a foreign tax credit carry forward from the historic system that we had, you know, where a lot of people had 
excess credits for a whole bunch of reasons, some including even just the toll charge brought in a lot of unremitted right. earnings that had a lot of extra credits because foreign rates were high, right? So th there's a lot of clients that still have a fairly material general basket foreign tax credit carry forward. And then when TCJA came in, it created the branch basket, which created you know, a lot of clients having branch basket credit carry forward. So we've got clients that have problems in both, quite a few of them actually. And when you then transfer into this proposed new system, the question becomes, well, how is that gonna work? Where are those credit carry forwards going to go? So in one of the you know original drafts, there was a debate over, are they gonna make those five-year carry forwards or 10-year carry forwards? And th that caused a lot of anxiety out there because a lot of these credits are you know, older foreign tax credits, especially in the general mm -hmm. basket. So then people were trying to figure out if they're five years, do we have to use them by the end of this calendar year? What, what does all this mean? So they clarified that in the most recent ways and means draft where they said, no, 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 okay, everything's gonna be 10 years, including the guilty carry forwards. But it, it's still a lot of uncertainty on what does that mean going forward? Like where, if I'm a company and I've got foreign tax credit carry forwards in either basket, where do they go in a go forward system? Do they go into this residual general basket that you're describing or will they go into a by country allocation, basically tracing the history of where yeah, those credits came from? Right. So if I had you know, $10 million of credits from Canada that were generated, to go back and figure out, okay, they came from Canada, and then would they go into the Canadian general basket going forward? Maybe that's the answer. And if that's the answer, then generally speaking, absent something different, most people's Canadian general basket going forward will be excess credit. Okay, there's, you know, the Canada statutory rate is 21%. That's over the U.S. rate. Generally speaking, you're going to be in an excess credit in that country, whether it's in right. general or guilty. That's just basically how it would work. So, so, so if they push them into the Canadian basket, then where is there an ability to use them? I think it's very unclear. It seems like probably not in a new system. In particular, if Canada pays a royalty and that royalty goes into the residual general basket, now you've got a mismatch between royalty income, which historically could be used to get offset credits versus where the credits ultimately go. So there's a lot of uncertainty out there on this right now. I don't have an answer. Um, yeah. I, I don't know the answer. I'm not um, sure. Well, and, and Congress has given Treasury authority to make those decisions, right? So even if this bill gets passed, we don't know what's going to happen. Because I do. I want to reset, because I think it's just a great point that you raised, is we have uncertainty with what happens with the general, with those credits that are on the, the balance sheet, if you will. And again, kind of thinking more in the context of public companies, but for companies that are just carrying yep. over, even if you're private, you're carrying over foreign tax credits. The question is, all right, well, what happens with those FTC carry forwards? Where do they go? Even if you know that, you still don't know if you're going to be able to use them during the 10-year carry forward window until you know what the historic streams of income that were foreign source general basket, how those will be decided. Right. right? And, and just to maybe unpack that, I mean, if, if you think most, I don't, our audience might be a little bit, you know, vary, but most people realize today if I have a general basket credit carry forward and I have royalty income, those are in the same spot. I can use royalties to right. use those credits or other sources of foreign source income, whether it's good, you know, export income, 862 income or whatever it might be. We know today that those line up and you either know, based off of my projections, I'm gonna be able to use these credits or I probably have to have a valuation allowance on them. I don't know the answer to that. If the law passes as written, 
starting 1-1-22. You, you know you'll have the assets still, but the buckets of income, it's very unclear to me where they're going to go. And that's going to cause some questions for financial statements, and it's going to cause a lot of uncertainty. I think regs ultimately will clarify this, but we're not going to have those regs, obviously, in the short term. Right. And to that point, and that's where I was heading, is if this law passes before calendar year, before the end of the calendar year here in 2021, then particularly for public companies, they're going to need to make an assessment about whether they can use those foreign tax credits during the 10-year carry forward under the existing law. And we are not going to know what those regulations are. And so it is going to be a very difficult task for for taxpayers as well as the the audit firms to really kind of understand and think through that that analysis. My two cents is that um, if Treasury is going to be drafting those rules and particularly just taking a royalty example, if these were maybe withholding taxes that had resulted from royalties being paid back to the U.S. when IP is in the U.S., it would certainly make sense for me to just say, well, keep those in this residual general basket, let those foreign tax credits carry forward in that residual general basket, and then let future income associated with that stay in that residual basket, because it's all related to the same underlying type of income, even though the IP might be exploited in various foreign jurisdictions. But we have no idea what Treasury is going to is going to do about that. Uh, that that's certainly a, a path they yeah. could take, and that would be a taxpayer-friendly path, because at least in that example, you know there's going to be income from royalty that, you know, like we have today, can use be used to offset credits. The other one that it's not as broad, but some of our clients have is a, an, an ODL, right? And so the overall, the, the, the domestic loss, and, and what do you do with that going forward? Because that's generally speaking a good attribute to use foreign tax credits. Because so, it means that future domestic income gets recharacterized as foreign source, and then you can use the foreign tax credits to, to you can use that resourced income to soak up your foreign tax credits. Right, and so th- that's a big question. If you if you are a company today and you have an ODL and you have foreign tax credits, if you're making money in the U.S., generally speaking, you know, okay, that ODL is going to flip, and I'll be able to use the credits. Again, I think there's uncertainty as to what happens to that ODL on a go-forward system. Does it mirror up with where the credits are, or do the credits, you know, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, that, that causes um, a lot of questions out there with our clients, and they're trying to figure out what, you know, what the right answer is. So, And again, for the public companies, the other it, it creates uncertainty. Right. And, and, and I know, I think historically that Congress and Treasury have been mindful about, you know, some of these law changes and the implications that it could have to the markets. And there are a lot of multinationals with significant, um, you know, deferred tax assets related to foreign tax credits. You can see it in 10Ks, you know, right. in public documents. And so. Well, and they don't they don't have a reserve against them because under the current system, you know, they. They have royalty projections or ODLs right. that can be used, and so there's no need to have a reserve against that asset because you can say, okay, I've got five years left. I've got this much royalty, this much ODL if I have an ODL, and I know that I can use them. Well, that doesn't hold up necessarily going forward depending on how the ultimate law gets passed. And then, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful that regs will eventually clarify this. I think it might cause some uncertainty in the interim period, though. Yeah, and it would certainly be helpful if anybody from Treasury happens to be listening that um, to be able to get some guidance on this sooner rather than later to kind of understand, you know, the direction of travel that Treasury might be considering would be very helpful because it's 
it's going to be a scramble to, to do that analysis already with a short window and then without actually knowing what the law is. It just makes it even more challenging. Well, it's a real world issue. And, and one example I got is imagine, you know, the credits do get pushed into a by country basket going forward instead of this residual basket. So I've got a credit carry forward of, of 10 and it was generated from a business in a country that I no longer operate in. What do you do there? Right. I mean, where does it go? I mean, I don't even have a business in that country anymore. It was, you know, five years ago, we, we unwound that business. You can't put it into that country's basket. I don't have a business there. Right. There's just stuff like that yeah. that comes and up. How and you, you look back. It's and you really just say, well, I'm not, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. So. Yeah, the other thing, so um, the other thing that we're seeing from an attribute perspective as we talk about and whether it's financial statements or just from a cash tax perspective is just the number of attributes that we have to track now, right? We yeah. already think about the complexities associated with PTEP, right? We're still waiting on on some of those regulations. Um, and and for me, thinking about, and I remember kind of back in the day, I'll, I'll date myself and I, you, you might be around that genre, <laughs> but... I remember one of the first 1118s that I did, I, there were probably 15 1050 companies, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. When that was, each was a separate basket. And I just remember how complicated that 1118 and the expense apportionment was because we had to do that across, you know, all of those, those yeah. additional baskets. And I thought that was just horrible. I remember just the 15, I had, you know, 16 right, baskets or right. 17, including passive because we had passive general, then all the 1050 baskets. Well, now we're talking about, and for some of the companies that you work with, I mean, hundreds of foreign tax credit baskets now, as we think about a separate basket for every guilty country, a separate basket for every branch and, and general. And, and then thinking about, well, if each one is subject to its own foreign tax credit limit calculation or foreign tax credit limit, you're going to have to do that calculation for every single basket. And the complexity is just daunting. I mean, if, if, if you think about it, I, I, I have several clients that are in a hundred countries. I mean, they, they just are, that's mm -hmm. how they operate their business. And even if they don't have expense apportionment into the guilty basket, which is the most recent draft essentially says there's not going to be expense apportionment. You still have to track the credit in each of those countries and do your limitation calculation. Mm -hmm. And now we have a carry forward. So you're going to have to track your carry forward. And most of these countries are going to be excess credit. I mean, the, the new kind of normal is 15.8. So most of these European countries, most of the Asian jurisdictions, a lot of the, a lot of the LATAMs, you're over the, the minimum 15.8. So you're going to have a credit carry forward. You have to track in every country. You have the compliance that you have to do correctly as best as you can in every jurisdiction. That's a hundred forms per basket per country. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. It's it's going to be a big challenge for 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 companies for sure. Well, and I think the other piece of that that I see and I feel for my clients on is they're also dealing with a lot of pressure to try to have less people with their own internal teams. Mm -hmm. So not only are we getting more complicated from a U.S. perspective, and then ultimately with you know the pillar one, pillar two, which we haven't gotten to mm -hmm. at all, but that adds more complexity. And then public country by country reporting also adds more complexity. All compliance driven with less people you have in-house to try to manage that and deal with it. That, that's a lot to ask of our clients. It is. So let's move to, to what's happening outside the U.S. because wanted to get some of your thoughts there. So we're supposed to hear this week, we'll see some additional detail on Pillar 2, which of course you'll hear about here on the cross-border tax talks, assuming we actually get some of that additional detail, which I will assume we would. The OECD has said that they will. 
So obviously we don't have that detail now, but as we think about pillar one, the reallocation of, of income, and then pillar two, as we think about kind of this minimum tax type rule and the undertaxed payment rule, and that's gonna, you know, th those rules are supposed to come on January 1st, 2023, coincidentally or not so coincidentally, the same time that, that at least in the current bill when guilty comes on. Yep. So how does that kind of play into the calculus as companies are thinking about their structures? We talked about kind of country by country guilty and the need to look at internal financing and internal capital structures, but how does that all kind of triangulate? I think the first thing it means to me from a planning perspective is 15.8 is kind of the new normal in your global mm -hmm. income, right? And that 15.8 is essentially the guilt, if it, assuming it stays, it's the guilty minimum tax rate for U.S. for by country. So to the extent that you historically as a company had income that was in lower tax jurisdictions than that, it's not as desirable or favorable in a in a global pillar one, pillar two environment in U.S. by country with 15.8. Mm -hmm. So 15.8 is kind of the new international normal minimum mm -hmm. for U.S. multinationals, at least. And presumably foreign multinationals, depending on how Pillar 2 gets implemented. Depending on how it's implemented. Right. You know, so, so that translates into everybody's uh, effective rates are going to probably go up because, you know, the min rate on a global basis is higher. It also drives you more towards, um, to a certain extent, where you're going to have your income and your principles and your financing and everything else, you're again more substance driven to try to support the profit and the income in those jurisdictions on a global basis. I think you're going to see more controversy trying to come after that income. So businesses are going to real even more focus on aligning their income, their profit, where their substance is. It's going to be in jurisdictions that's rate is going to be somewhere close to whatever the min is. So whether it's UK, Ireland, Switzerland, on a, on a global basis, those rates are gonna be close to 15, Singapore and Asia. Um, I, I think you're gonna see more and more and more of that, less um, havens than you have historically. Mm -hmm. And I think there's been a big trend we've seen over the last even 15 years with most you know, companies really moving away from that. I think where one of the big challenges, because most of these rules gear on the actual amount of cash taxes paid, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have amortization because maybe you did a big asset deal, if you have losses that you've carried over, yep. even high tax jurisdictions, and I've dealt with this with a number of taxpayers, it's like, hey guys, I know the statutory rate in France is high, but if you have these losses that are otherwise reducing your tax, all of a sudden the effective rate that you're paying whether it's under the pillar two definition or the, the guilty definition, that still ends up as a low tax. So people oftentimes think about havens, but it's not necessarily that. It could just be as a result of attributes right. that you're deemed to have a low tax jurisdiction. And, and I I don't know that that's all, we, we don't know the answer to all that stuff yet, right. right? Same with patent boxes or things like that, you know, right. incentives. I mean, how's that all gonna fit into this definition of a min tax regime right. on a global basis? To your point, I might have a bunch of income, you know, in, in the UK and I might have a bunch of amortization for whatever reason or other things. And so my rate might be something less. Does it still qualify? You know, is, is that still sufficient? Cause the statutory rate in the UK is going to 25 as we mm -hmm. know. Um, I, I don't know the answer to those things. I think that's going to be interesting to watch as, as this all evolves over the next couple of years. Right. Um, so the next topic I wanted to move to was the deal market. I know you spend a lot of time in, in that space. It has been extremely hot, obviously, in, in the last 
frankly, over, I guess, 18 months or, yep. I mean, really through the pandemic, which I think has surprised a number yep. of us. I don't see it slowing down either. And so. it doesn't seem like yeah. it, it's slowing down and on both kind of the, the strategic acquisitions that we're seeing with a number of public companies in, in the market, divestitures, spinoffs, split ups, private it. equity market um, is super hot. I mean, just a lot, a lot of activity in the deal market. Talk a little bit about some of the uncertainties. We've already talked about kind of external debt and with 163N, and that's something that I'm I'm dealing with now in a current deal where it's just like, well, you know, the deal guys are like, what's the after-tax cost, yep. you know, or what's the, they wanted the models, right? Everybody wants their model. And it's just like, we've got just massive ranges in there because it's like, well, we don't know. Let's just assume the worst. But how are you dealing with that from a practical perspective? Uh, you, you know, the, the reality of it is because the deal market is hot, that's not going to stop. And they're not going to wait for us tax people right. to, to, to figure out the answers. So I think you have to make your best educated guess on, on what we think the rules are going to be, depending on the timing of the divestiture or the acquisition or the spin. You know, you have to think through all that related to when we think the laws are going to be applicable. So right now, you know, for a lot of the international provisions, there's this one year you know, gap before they're effective. Same with 163N. So it, to the extent there's going to be something happening, you know, in the short term, I think you can still, depending on what you're doing, quantify it relatively accurately. If it's something that's going to be, it's an acquisition to your point on 163N and they're trying to figure out the Where capital the and how that all works. That's, that, that is, that's harder yeah. um, because we, we, we have to assume, I, what I'm advising is you have to assume 163N is going to pass. Yeah. And if it passes, then what does that mean if you're, you know, 25, 40% foreign? You do need to think about that as you're financing these transactions. And then how do you structure the capital? Do you still borrow in the U.S.? Do you borrow U.S. offshore if there's international components to what you're buying? Uh, I think you really need to think through that. I think the other big question is if it's divestitures or spins, you know, attributes move all over the place in those transactions. Great point. And, and how do you... The deal folks want to know, well, you know, what are the attributes going with the spin or what, what are the attributes going with the transactions that we're working through and what's the cost of the divestiture? That's harder to quantify right now. I think, you, again, you make an educated guess and say, based off the rules we have and what we know, you know, this is what we think the impact could be. You know, one of, one of the, the specific examples is very common in our business that you have a foreign sale on most of our clients historically, we'd call it a Dover sale, right? So you would sell a disregarded entity for U.S. purposes. It's a foreign company and you'd create gain in the current system. That's guilty gain. And there's a provision in the Ways and Means draft that, that talks about 338 H16 on they're going to change the way the foreign tax credit calculation works with those types of transactions mm -hmm. going forward. In other words, the, 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 it will not be guilty basket income where you can use guilty credits. It appears as though it's its own basket mm -hmm. under the way the rule is written. And, and, and so that's a material change for a lot of our clients. Whereas, you know, let's say it was this year under current rules, if you sold a, you know, a Canadian entity in a Dover sale, you'd create gain. That gain is guilty. And if you have foreign tax credits in your aggregate system, you can use them, you know, to, to offset the gain. That's all fundamentally changing mm -hmm. under this 338 H16 provision. Well, that doesn't mean companies are going to stop selling Canada. Like if they want to sell Canada, they're right. going to sell Canada. Right. So you, you have to understand what's the timing of the transaction, what would be the implications of the deal if they were to sell it this year versus next year. A lot of that is strategic and how you're in, in the, I'd say tax strategic and how you can message, message things to the business folks. Sure. 
Um, so there's going to be no shortage of things for us to talk about here on the cross-border tax talks, assuming this Build Back Better plan does get passed. Time will go. tell. It's difficult to predict the future. So what will be interesting is over the course of the next three years, and, and if this does pass, and even if it doesn't pass, we know Pillar 2 is that yep. that train is coming down the tracks. There will be no shortage of things for us to talk about here on the cross-border tax talks and for us to talk about as advisors or as well as, as for taxpayers. But really where I wanted to get your last thoughts here before we wrap the podcast is every four years, if we end up with a change of administration, if, if the Republicans take over, we're going to we're gonna see another round of significant changes to the corporate tax system and the international tax system? I think so, right? Yeah, and it's interesting to tie it back to the beginning of the discussion. I remember in 2010, 2011, talking about you know, tax reform and what it would mean for our job and how, you know, what does that mean for the future of our profession? And you know, since 2017 and leading up to that period, we've been very busy, you know, whether it's in-house or as consultants, advisors, and I don't see that changing for the foreseeable future. I mean, change and complexity is, is drives need for, for people to, to address those issues, whether it's in-house or, or as an advisor, I think it could continue to change. And I think what we're going through right now is a little bit of, uh, um, you know, it's no longer a race to the bottom, right? So this 15.8 and everybody's raising their rates. We had the COVID impact, so people are trying to raise money. I don't know how long that's gonna last, you know? So as countries may shift their thinking in the future, including the US, depending on who's, you know, in charge, um, I, I think you could see it continue to change and evolve over the next four years, eight years, you know, for as long as you and I are doing this, so. I'm with you. The The whole point of this really true consolidated tax base where the entire world is operating under one international tax system, I think is is decades away, if, if, if even viable, because to your point, countries just, and we see it with here within the US between cities and between states, companies will invest, will compete for direct investment. And sure. we see this, you know, again, throughout the United States and various incentives, and, it, and it's, gonna ha- it's gonna continue to happen across the globe. And you're right that, you know, as the global economy shifts and we'll see what happens with the pandemic, you can certainly see com- countries trying to make some of their own, you know, decisions to be able to try to drive some of that foreign direct investment. Yep. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for joining. Yeah. Great discussion. It's going to be really interesting to things to see how things shake out uh, over the course of the next couple months and really over the next year with, with respect to all these provisions and attributes. Yeah, I guess we'll stay tuned. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thanks again to Jeff Endress, an international tax partner in PwC's Washington National Tax Services Practice and leader of PwC's U.S. ITS Outbound Practice. I'm Doug Bacconi, PwC's International Tax Services Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of the Cross-Border Tax Talks podcast. 